Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, Certified Religious Transition and Trauma Recovery Coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. Today, we are returning to the topic of healing from narcissistic abuse. And I know I've already had some of you ask, why are we talking about narcissism? I thought this was a podcast on healing from religious trauma. And I will tell you why. The reason we're talking about narcissistic abuse is often the way that high demand religions are organized is in a very narcissistic way. So it operates like a narcissistic dysfunctional system where there's control on behavior, control on thought. There is a certain image that we're trying to portray to the world and we're required to suppress emotions. We're required to fit a role in order to be in the system. Now, the reason we're talking about narcissistic families is because not all religions operate in a narcissistic way. Some of the most high demand ones do, and it's on a spectrum. So it's on a spectrum from healthy all the way up to dysfunctional and abusive. And so we're exploring this so we can kind of see where some of these things may have been in our religious systems. But more importantly, The way we interpret religion often has to do with how our family system operates within the religion. And so because our high demand systems operate with this narcissistic dysfunction, often it creates narcissists, whether covert or overt, it creates narcissists that then turn around and organize their family systems the same way the religious system is set up. So we're going to be exploring this particularly in April. We're going to be digging into narcissistic abuse, what it means to be in the different roles in your family, and then, you know, give us some ideas about how we're going to heal. Today, we're going to be talking about the roles in a narcissistic family. And as we're talking about this, I want you to really think about the different roles, which ones you might have played, because many of us actually took on several different roles and our roles in our family may have changed depending on our participation in our religion, on our grades, on if we made the sports team or not. It also may have changed depending on other children being born into the family, whether we left for college when we got married or didn't get married. And so basically what happens is as we evolve and change and as our parents' situation evolves and change, we may have been asked to inhabit different roles. And I say we may have been asked, we weren't asked. We were assigned these roles And we weren't able to give consent to those roles. In fact, we might not have even been aware that we were playing these roles. And so that's part of the reason that I want us to explore this today. So I do want to make something clear. There are many different kinds of familial dysfunction. Not all of them are narcissistic. Some of those will overlap with narcissistic dysfunction. But just because you recognize some of these things doesn't necessarily mean that you have a person in your family that would be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that there is a narcissist in your family. There may just be dysfunction in your family. We're exploring this from a narcissistic lens, particularly because of the high demand mind control and how that operates like a narcissist. Okay. So this is both to help us get curious about our religious systems and our family systems, but just for ease of conversation, we're going to be talking about narcissistic family systems with parents and children, because often it's a little easier to pinpoint these ideas within a family system than it is within a larger religious system. Although we are going to explore narcissistic dysfunction in religion, specifically Christianity and Christian-based religions in a future podcast. So I'm really excited about, you know, going through those ideas, things that are in the Bible, things that are in the Book of Mormon, and really pulling out some of these narcissistic dysfunctional traits that are held up as ideal and what we're striving for. So we will be talking about that. Um, but right now, I really do want to focus on the families because what happens so often for my clients is as we're processing religious trauma and as we're trying to make our religious transitions, one of the first things that we're most concerned about is usually how do I tell my family? How do I fit into my family now? Or how do I relate with my spouse or my kids? We're most concerned with our close relationships whenever we're making these big transitions. So just to review what a narcissist is. Now, narcissism is a personality disorder that is diagnosed in the DSM-5. And there are several you know, qualifications that you need to meet in order to be diagnosed as a narcissist or someone with narcissistic personality disorder. Today, we're going to be thinking about narcissism, not just in that very defined way, but on a spectrum of traits. So when you're thinking about your family system, um, you might notice some narcissistic traits or some things that are dysfunctional. That doesn't mean that someone in your family is diagnosable with narcissistic personality disorder. It may just mean that there are a lot of strong traits of narcissism that have been passed down and these systems are acting out in your family. Okay. It's still traumatic, regardless of if there's somebody with narcissistic personality disorder or whether there are just some strong narcissistic traits happening in your family. It's still traumatic for children. It is still developmentally delaying for children. It can still emotionally suppress us. It can still leave us feeling like we don't know what our identity is. It can leave us with perfectionism and people-pleasing tendencies or overachieving tendencies, the inability to rest and take care of ourselves. There are all kinds of things that can happen. Anxiety and depression is another one. We can be left feeling really anxious about how we connect with others or how others view us or whether we're enough. So if you have any of those traits, this is going to be just an exercise to get curious about. You may get uncomfortable as we're talking about these things. I definitely have gotten uncomfortable as I've been studying about narcissistic traits because I have some. I have some narcissistic traits. I was raised in a family that has generations of narcissistic traits. I don't know if anyone in my family would actually be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And that's difficult as well, because often narcissists don't go to mental health professionals to get diagnosed because they don't see anything wrong with themselves. They believe everybody else is the problem. So they don't seek help. They just believe everybody else needs the help. 
So it's often difficult because narcissists don't get diagnosed. So I don't know if I have anyone in my family that would be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, but a lot of what we're talking about today, I relate with very deeply. And I even recognize some of these traits that I've brought with me into my adult life and maybe some of the ways that I've been slipping them into my family without realizing it. So if you get uncomfortable while we're talking about this, know that I'm right there with you. Know that most of our listenership is probably right there with you. If we're coming from high demand religion, we were trained to think like a narcissist. We were trained to take on traits of grandiosity, of feeling like we're better than other people, feeling like we're elite, while simultaneously feeling like we're not enough, feeling like we're deficient, feeling like, you know, feeling a lot of shame for just being human. So that's a perfect recipe to create narcissism. And if you're feeling that, know you're not alone. And know that being curious with it is a great way to keep from passing on these traits to our children. Even if you've already started implementing some of these things in your family, even if you found yourself doing what your parents or your grandparents did in their families, you can always recognize it, notice, oh my gosh, I am doing these things, and you can make a conscious decision to choose something different. All of us are capable of healing if we're willing to be aware and if we're willing to be accountable. So as we're talking through these things, notice when you get those pings of discomfort, when you feel that resistance, all of that's good information. So where you feel the resistance might be a place to get curious with whenever you feel comfortable doing that. Where you feel discomfort, also a place to get curious about and where you feel grief because you might feel grief. Notice that as well. Also, one more thing before we get into this for real is I want you to really pay attention to your body. If you find yourself getting really anxious, if you find yourself feeling overwhelmed with grief, pause, give yourself permission to take a break and process and to calm your nervous system. We're talking about some things that can bring back PTSD. We're talking about some things that can bring back CPTSD. These are really traumatic things, and it's going to take some time to process. I've been learning about this for months now, and there are times I have to put it away and take a break and learn about something different. And usually we have a podcast on something different during those times because I need to take a break and I need to process what I've already learned. I need to think about how that's showing up in my life. And I need to make some changes and kind of come to terms with things and grieve some things. So if you need to do that too, it makes sense. It makes sense. Give yourself permission to listen to your body. Pause when you need to pause. Rest for as long as you need to. We are not racing to heal ourselves here. I know some of us have this ideation that I will heal everything and then no one can reject me. If I heal all the things, if I heal all the trauma, if I fix all the narcissism, if I do all the things, then no one can reject me. People have to accept me. They have to love me, including myself. And that's not how it works. You're lovable and acceptable exactly as you are. You are lovable and acceptable when you are enduring the narcissistic abuse. And as you heal, and you may be healing for the rest of your life, these are deeply ingrained patterns from childhood. 
And they'll pop up when we're in different circumstances where we haven't had to deal with the pattern before. So we may be dealing with some of these patterns or some of the layers to these patterns for the rest of our lives. And that doesn't feel as overwhelming when we understand that we're worthy now and that we're, you know, worthy of acceptance and validation and love and belonging right now. We don't have to heal all the things to prove that we're worthy. And that is a very narcissistic dysfunctional belief that many of us picked up is that we have to somehow do the work and be perfect in order to earn validation and love and belonging and acceptance and accolades and success and all of the things that we have to rid ourselves of all imperfection, to be sin-free, to be offense-free in order to be worthy of those things. So just be aware if you notice that ideology coming up of, I have to push through this, I have to heal this, I have to fix this right now in order for people to love me or want to be my friend or to accept me and my family of origin or to finally make my mom or dad proud, okay? So those are dysfunctional ideas that come from an unhealthy system. And if that ideation is there, that's okay. It makes sense that it's there, but be aware of it and start to become accountable for it and decide what you want to do to change it. And we're going to be exploring those ideas as well. Okay. So today I am drawing from some of the work of trauma therapist, Shannon Thomas, and you're going to see me look off to the side because this is where my notes are and I have pages and pages. I'm not going to go through all those pages of notes with you, but I'm just going to hit on the highlights. And her work was really, really helpful for me in really understanding why narcissism happens in the first place and what's going on. Reading her work allowed me to have empathy for the people who display a lot of narcissistic traits, including myself, and to also to start creating boundaries, to start creating places that I can be safe in my family of origin, in my extended family of origin, and with old friends from high demand religion. So we're going to delve into some of her work because I really like how she explains some of these ideas. Now, she says, growing up in a narcissistic family can feel like a big play. Everyone is assigned a role to make the narcissist look good in public, and in return, they hope to get love and affection. So everyone in a narcissistic family has a role. The narcissist is the starring role. They're the ones that run the show. They Everybody else revolves around them. They call all the shots and everybody else has a supporting role to play that builds up the narcissist. And they all do that. They engage in the subconscious contract with the narcissist, hoping that they can get love and affection and approval in return. We talked about codependency a couple of episodes ago. All of those supporting roles are codependent with the narcissist. And if we choose not to be codependent with the narcissist, because there are a couple of roles that choose not to fit, they choose not to engage in the narrative, they still play a role. And the role still serves the narcissist. And in some ways, that's still a little bit of codependency. So it's something to be aware of. 
Now to those of us who don't understand how narcissistic personality disorder comes about or how those narcissistic traits come about, this can feel really unjust and it is really unjust and it can feel like it's really evil, especially when we come from high demand systems where things are either righteous or evil, good or bad, right or wrong. I want us to understand that the narcissist, their most basic need is to protect themselves from an unresolved and destabilizing sense of inadequacy established in early childhood. So these people, when they were children, they had a really destabilized sense of attachment with their parents, and it left them feeling inadequate. And so what they do is they adopt a grandiose persona, which may be overtly or covertly expressed. So they adopt this kind of alter ego that is all the things that they want to be, all the things that they want the world to believe about them, all the things that they believe will give them all the accolades, the acceptance, the praise, and the validation that they didn't get as children. And I like this definition as well. It says a person with narcissistic personality disorder, and I'm going to throw in there even somebody with strong narcissistic personality traits, experiences disrupted attachment with caregivers early in life, that impedes healthy emotional development. This child is unable to establish a secure identity, a resilient self-esteem, or an empathic connection with others. And this makes them emotionally unstable, self-focused, delusional, demanding, and often stunningly callous or cruel. I just, I want us to understand that when we're dealing with a narcissist, we can absolutely hold them accountable for their behavior. We can have feelings of grief, resentment, anger, all of that. Loneliness, betrayal, we can feel all of those things. We can hold them accountable. We can set boundaries. We can do whatever we need to do to protect ourselves. And if we're raised by narcissists, often we have some of these traits ourselves by having empathy for our parent or grandparent or aunts or uncles or siblings that display these traits by understanding what can create this in other people, we also offer ourselves compassion, which allows us to heal. So having empathy for the narcissist in your life while setting boundaries, while creating healthy space for yourself doing whatever you need to do, whether that's completely detaching from the family, whether that's deciding exactly how long you can spend with your narcissistic parent, sibling, aunt, uncle, or grandparent, all of that, that allows us to heal. We need both the space and the boundaries and the compassion. Because so often what happens is if we are not allowed to look at our narcissistic family member with compassion and with empathy and with understanding, what ends up happening is we also can't find empathy, compassion, and understanding for those parts that are in ourselves. And as long as we can't find compassion for those parts of ourselves, as long as we can't offer those parts of ourselves empathy, then A, we won't be willing to look at them and B, we, can, we can't heal them. Because in order to heal those parts of ourselves, we have to be able to accept that they're there first. And it's hard to accept that things are there first when we loathe them in other people. 
And it makes sense that we loathe these things. It makes sense that we're hurt. It makes sense that we have a lot of trauma around this. It makes sense. But as we process through that, and as we come to understand how our parent got to that place, whether we can allow that parent in our lives or not, because there are some narcissistic parents that are completely destructive, will try to destroy your life. There are others that are just intolerant, will make you feel bad about your choices, will try to, you know, passively, aggressively pull you back into the family and make you perform your role to provide them with narcissistic supply and make them look good in public. There's a whole spectrum here. So it's completely understandable if you're with a parent that will try to destroy your life if you don't fit their narrative, that you have to detach. And if you're with a parent like that, chances are you have some traits that you picked up for survival as a child living under the same roof with that parent. So having at least an understanding and some empathy for how they got to be the way they are can help you have understanding and empathy for the things that are inside of you that you picked up for survival yourself. Even if those things are different, even if they're in response, but different, we pick up dysfunction when we're raised with dysfunction. And we're going to talk about all the different roles that dysfunction may look like and how we all fit into this play that we're putting on, this show that we're putting on for the world as a narcissistic family. So when we're in a narcissistic family, what often happens is we feel detached from one another. We feel like we can't trust one another. We don't feel safe with each other, but we're expected to put on a happy and successful facade. So often the play or what we're projecting out to the world is decided by the narcissist. They decide what grandiose image they want to portray to the world, how they want to be seen, how they want to be portrayed, and they set the stage. And this is usually done subconsciously. It's not like narcissists are sitting there going, ha, 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 consciously deciding how can I ruin my children's lives? How can I make everybody feel insecure? How can I, they're not doing this consciously. This is a very subconscious process where they're deciding what would make them look good and what gives them the greatest likelihood of getting the validation and attention that they feel like they're lacking. Because remember, narcissism is two sides of a coin. On one side, you've got this grandiose image of this amazing person, super smart, super successful, super beautiful, whatever it is, the images that they value. And on the other side, you have somebody who feels deeply insecure. So subconsciously, they're looking for how can I make people view me as a successful, beautiful, accomplished, put together, pious person? How can I get people to see me as worthy or enough? And we can all understand that. We all crave connection. We all crave validation. We all crave to be seen and heard and loved for who we are. But when we have this deeply wounded sense of self and we don't know who we are and we don't feel worthy and we're worried that people will know that we're not worthy of love and belonging, sometimes we can reach for this inflated sense of self this self-importance that we put out there. And it's going to look different whether we're an overt grandiose narcissist. That's somebody, 
we all know what this looks like. It's the braggart. It's the person that always has to be the best in the room. They one up your story. They put you down. If you know, you're making them look bad. It's that person. But I find that more often than not, my clients are saying that their parents are more covert narcissists. And that's been my experience as well. I find that covert narcissists tend to be attracted to high demand religion more than overt narcissists. There are definitely some overt narcissists in high demand religion, but covert narcissism fits really well with high demand religion because we can, you know, put on this facade of humility and piety. We can go do service. And we also feel like we're better than other people. We're looking for that sense of grandiosity, but we do it in a more of a covert way. I have definitely engaged in this, feeling like I'm better than other people, being grateful I was part of a high demand religion and the chosen tiny 0.2% of the world's population that was going to be going to the highest degree of heaven. I have engaged in that thought behavior before because I also felt highly inadequate underneath it all. And there's this like, crazy system that goes on where you're held up like you're the chosen and you're sinful, carnal, lustful in your natural state. So it really is this confusing message back and forth. So it makes sense, right? So the narcissistic parent chooses what the play is. They choose what they're trying to project out into the world. And it depends on what they value. Now, there are a couple of things that pretty much all narcissistic families want to convey to the world. The first one is we're a happy family. And this is used to really kind of bolster the reputation out in public. Like if we're a happy family, we're doing something right. We're good parents. We're good people. And children in these kinds of systems, they're expected to be perfectly well-behaved, well-groomed, well-behaved, like everything on the outside looks good. The problem with this is, is that the children's emotional needs often aren't met. They're not allowed to feel disappointed. They're not allowed to feel betrayed. They're not allowed to feel angry. They're not allowed to feel resentful. They're not allowed to feel any of those things. But on the outside, they have to portray that everything's okay. And because the narcissistic parent is not capable of feeling their own feelings, they have disembodied to survive their childhood. They're not emotionally available for their children. And then they're expecting their children to show up as perfectly well-behaved in order to bolster the narcissist's sense of self out in public and to get those accolades, to get all those people saying what a good parent they are, how well-behaved their children are, you know, how what a great Christian they are, obviously, because their kids are so good. And then what this does is it causes the children to disembody from their own emotions. So they dissociate because their emotions are not allowed and they're not allowed to voice them or acknowledge them. The only thing we can do at that point, because it's so painful is to dissociate or numb. So we numb that emotion. We put it down in a box. We bury it inside of ourselves and we pretend like it's not there. And instead we put on our happy face and we show up to church. We show up in public. We show up to school pretending like everything's okay. And we slowly by increments lose our ability to feel until we feel either empty, numb, 
Or what starts to happen is we've suppressed so much rage and resentment that it comes bursting out of us in these explosive moments. And that was probably my first hint that something was wrong is I couldn't suppress my rage anymore. I couldn't suppress the upset that I had been shoving down for pretty much my entire childhood throughout my teen years and my early twenties. I couldn't suppress it anymore as I neared 30 and I I didn't know what was wrong. I was angry all the time. I felt so much rage. And what was happening is I had suppressed so much of these negative emotions and had numbed them and dissociated from them. I just couldn't hold anymore. And it would come out in these bursts. And then I'd feel huge amounts of shame for having these outbursts and add on top of it, motherhood which I think had a lot to do with finally coming to terms with this. Add on top of it motherhood and what that meant for me, as well as my care and concern for my child. And it really all just came to a head. So this happens to children in narcissistic families or dysfunctional families. Our emotional needs are not met. We have to dissociate in order to survive. In order to make it through our childhood, we have to dissociate from our painful feelings. And then sometimes we end up perpetuating some of those same things that our parents did to us on our children, not because we're bad people, but because we haven't learned how to be emotionally mature. We haven't learned how to feel through our difficult feelings, how to express them, how to get our needs met, how to care for ourselves. And because we can't do that for ourselves, We also can't do that for our children because we can't give to someone else what we don't have ourselves. Can't give my child emotional intelligence if I don't have it myself. And emotional intelligence is not like an IQ. It's not something that we're born with. It's something that we're taught and we practice. And many of us were not taught these skills. And so we didn't get a chance to practice. So the image of a happy family can be really detrimental to children when they feel like their needs are not met and they're not able to express that or get their needs met and they have to put on a mask in public. It creates a whole nother generation of disembodied, emotionally unintelligent people who are incapable of meeting others with empathy and getting their own emotional needs met. I think a lot of what we're seeing in our society today comes from this sense of extreme religion that we're seeing in our society where, I mean, narcissism has permeated not just religion. It's not just in our families. We're seeing it in politics. We're seeing it in education. We're seeing it in business. I can't tell you how many times I read stories of employees working for employers and how often I'm like, oh, that could have very easily happened in my high demand religion. So these narcissistic systems are everywhere there is power. Everywhere there's a power structure, you're going to see some of these narcissistic traits and narcissistic qualities. It has permeated our American culture, at least. Now, another thing that's really important to narcissistic families is this image of success. So if your parent valued success, and most narcissistic parents do, you're going to be expected to succeed at everything you try. And this is where a lot of that perfectionism comes from, because anything that's less than 100% is considered failure. And we can be really anxious about trying new things that we're not 100% sure that we're going to succeed at. We can also be anxious when we're 
being asked to get outside of our comfort zones, or we're in a new school, or we have new teachers, or we're asked to do anything different or outside of the norm. Because if we fail, then we are a failure. There's a lot of binary thinking in narcissistic systems. It's either all good or it's all bad. It's all right or it's all wrong. Because the narcissist needs control and they need certainty in order to feel stable and safe in their life, they feel like they need to have all the control of the narrative, both of their life and all of their children's lives and their partner's life. They need to be able to control all the aspects. Then binary thinking becomes the way that they exert that control. They set a standard and it has to be 100% because that's the way that they can feel safe. That's the way that they can feel like they're going to be seen as a good person and as worthwhile and as admirable and praiseworthy and acceptable. And the big thing is, is whether you receive approval and acceptance really kind of depends on how well you meet this narrative that the narcissist is trying to create. So the narcissist has this ideology that they have for the family and this image they're trying to project out into the world. And there's several different roles that children can take to support this ideology. Now, Shannon Thomas says, if you can play a role that serves the ideology, you're going to be valued and you're going to receive acceptance and approval. So I want you to take a moment and ask yourself, what did your family of origin value? You can tell by who received approval and love and acceptance and who did not. What were the traits that were approved of? What were the values that were upheld by the people who got the approval? So some of the things might be, were they boys or were they girls? Sometimes gender can play a big role. Were they good at sports, education, piety? Did they show up and look really righteous? Did they make the family look really righteous? Were the people who got approval quiet or were they loud? Were they introverted or were they extroverted? Were they dependent or were they independent? And sometimes the people that get approval in these family systems are the ones that have no demands or needs. They're the ones that cause the least amount of fuss. They're the most easily manipulated. They're the people that just kind of go with the flow no matter what. So go ahead and pause and really think about that for a minute. What were the values in your family? Who got the praise? Who got the rejection? And why? What was the value that was being upheld there? And I want you to ask yourself, was I one of the ones that got the praise? Or was I one of the ones that got the rejection? There will be places in your family where you got praise because you upheld certain values and rejection because you didn't uphold other values. And you may have received more rejection for the values that the narcissistic parent felt were more important and less rejection for ones that maybe were seen as adjacent to the main core family values. And now what I want you to do is I want you to ask yourself, are those your values? Sometimes what happens is we continue to reject ourselves and to beat ourselves up when we're not meeting the family or the system values. We internalize this idea that we deserve to be rejected. We deserve to be flogged. We deserve to be ignored or we deserve to be shamed 
because we're not meeting the values of the system or the narcissistic parent. But actually, the reason we were rejected is because we were living by our own set of values. So I want you to ask yourself, especially for the ones where you were rejected, are those my values? Is that something I value? And if not, what do I value instead? What was I living by? What value of my own was I living by when I was rejecting the family value of whatever it was? And if you found that you were the person that got praised and accepted, again, ask yourself, is that my value? And maybe it is, and that's okay. You ended up getting praised for something that was already your value, and so you lined up with that. I was just having a conversation with my youngest son, and there was a situation with their art teacher where some of the kids felt like they were being bullied, and they were being shamed and othered. And honestly, treated like scapegoats because they weren't doing art the way that the teacher wanted them to do art. She was teaching them principles and either they weren't as interested in the art as she hoped that they would be, or they were trying their own spin on things and she was getting really upset with them. And so several of his friends withdrew from the class and they're doing something else during that time. And so as I was speaking with my younger son, I asked him, do you want to be excuse from the class as well. And he said, no, I mean, he said, you know, she, her behavior is inappropriate. The way she's handling things is not okay. He said, I think she hasn't been taught how to feel her emotions. The benefits of having two parents who are constantly talking about emotional intelligence is you understand what that is and you know, your feelings and you're able to express them. And you also recognize even when adults aren't able to do that. And so he was able to recognize you know, I don't think she was taught how to feel her feelings. And I think she has a lot of feelings going on. And he was even able to recognize, like, I've had this teacher for three years and three years ago, she was a great teacher. And now she's really struggling. I have a feeling she's been through a lot in the last two years and she just doesn't know how to handle it. So he was like, what she's doing is not okay. But I also understand that she may have been through some things that she doesn't know how to handle and she's taking it out on us. And I asked him, I said, well, is she taking things out on you? And he said, well, no because I love art and I want to explore what she's teaching us. And so I'm really engaged in the project. So I don't really ever get called out. I'm actually one of her favorites because I love what we're learning. So that might've been you growing up as well. Maybe you grew up with parents that had certain values and those just happened to align with yours. So you were praised and you were treated like a golden child or a teacher's pet because that aligned with your values. That gets to be okay. But do understand that you got the praise and accolades because that was authentically your value and not necessarily because you were people-pleasing your parents. Or it may have been a little of both too. But recognize, okay, that is one of my values. That is something that I love, honestly. And I wasn't any better than my siblings. My values just had a tendency to align with my parents there, whereas my siblings' values didn't align with my parents there. And that gets to be okay. It gets to be okay that your siblings differentiated in that way and you didn't. My guess is you had some other places, especially if you're listening to this podcast, you had some other places where you differentiated that your parents didn't like, even if that happened later in life like it did for me when I was 37. The next thing that will determine your role in a narcissistic family is going to be how well you sell the image that the narcissist is trying to display to the world. So if you represent your family enthusiastically, 
then you're going to receive more points. But if you're unable to project that image, or if you just don't want to project that image, if you're not buying into what the family's trying to sell, then you're going to find that you're going to be the object of shame, resentment, and even sometimes just completely being ignored. Often the people that are in those situations tend to be the ones that either become lost children, which we'll talk about in a minute, or scapegoats, or both. So just know it's all about, can you serve the ideology? How well do you play the role and how well do you sell that role to the rest of the world? All right, so let's hop into these roles. What are the roles that we play in a narcissistic family? We're just going to kind of overview today what the different roles are so you can start getting curious about that. And in our next episodes, we are going to dive into the two main roles, which are golden child. This is the child that really kind of embodies what the parent wants to be seen as. So what happens is sometimes this child is an infant and the parent will superimpose this kind of idea, this alter ego onto this child and decide that that's who this child is and will raise and condition this child to become that thing. And as long as the child complies, they're going to receive lots of love and affection and attention. They're going to be treated like they're special, that they're different. Because remember, the narcissistic parent is trying to portray this alter ego, is trying to portray this narcissistic grandiose self out into the public. And they're, they believe that that is like the best person ever. They've created this kind of mythological creature. And by putting that on their child, what they're doing is they're showing themselves. It's almost like their way of creating a reality for themselves that they are this person because look, I've passed these traits on to this child. So they celebrate. Often the child will have something that the parent already values. So let's say the parent values image, for instance, if the child is born and is a beautiful baby, or at least if the parent believes that the child is a beautiful, attractive, happy, you know, easy to get along with child, then that child will become the golden child. But if the child is born and the parent perceives that child as awkward or unattractive, they may actually treat the first child as the scapegoat and the second child as the golden child. So it's whatever the parent values. It has nothing to do with the child themselves. It's all about what makes the parent look the best. So they're going to choose the child that is the most easily malleable into this alter ego, into this like ideal self. So whichever child is most malleable and whichever child like already sort of embodies that embodies those values. It's hard to tell if your child embodies, you know, education or intelligence at infancy, which is why sometimes those roles shift. So you may have a child that's a golden child as an infant, but let's say they end up, you know, not being interested in studying, or maybe they end up being neurodivergent or they end up, you know, something happens developmentally that makes the narcissistic parent 
believe, okay, this doesn't reflect as well on me as I thought it did, they will switch to another child and make that child the golden child. So it these roles can shift. So you could have been assigned golden child status early in life and then had it changed to another sibling and then had it changed or throughout your life, it may have changed depending on the circumstances, depending on your parents' mood, depending on a whole bunch of things, right? So for instance, in my family, I was the golden child, the golden grandchild. I was the firstborn grandchild. So so I was the golden grandchild in one of my sets of grandparents. And I was favored, like obviously favored over other grandchildren. I was invited on trips with my grandparents. I was given special toys and special treats. I got to spend the night more than anybody else got to spend the night. And that created all kinds of tension in our family, all kinds of jealousy, all kinds of competition, all kinds of hurt feelings and feelings of betrayal. Also in my family of origin, I was conditioned to be an ideal self for someone else as well. So I was even named after the person that um, my parent thought was ideal. And I was told all about this ideal person. I was told how she would act in difficult situations. I was told how kind she was to my parent growing up. I was told how she was a good girl. She was a popular girl. She was a kind girl. And I had this kind of figure set up for me And I was told, be like this person. And remember your name, every time my name was said, I was reminded of this person that I was supposed to become like. So I had a very different sort of growing up experience with being the golden child because it wasn't just implied who I should be. I was named after the person I should be. I was given a first and middle name after this person And I was told all about her as a high school student. And I continue to be told about this person, even as an adult. I've never met this person, but I often get sent pictures of this person and will be told about like how sweet and kind and nice and, you know, everything she is. I did end up being a lot like this person. And some of those values do line up with my values. Now, will I ever know if I would have had those same values if I had been raised differently. No, I won't. I will never know if some of my personal values were ingrained into me or indoctrinated into me as a child. I don't know, but empathy and kindness seem pretty important to me. Um, you know, doing good in the world seems pretty important to me. Like, you know, making the world a better place, however I see fit seems pretty important to me. It's the reason I'm doing this podcast. But there are other parts of that identity I don't identify with anymore, like being the super religious good girl, setting the example for the entire school. I had a lot of pressure put on my shoulders, even as a small child of feeling like I had to be like the most popular person in the room, but also this like religious good girl person. And it created all kinds of conflict. Um, Not necessarily for me as a child. I actually really enjoyed that role as a child because I did get lots of goodies and favors. And I don't think I was fully aware of how much competition and jealousy that it created in the family. All I knew is it felt really good to be treated like I was special. And I don't remember feeling like I was more special than any other person in my family because I think I naturally came with some empathy 
And so that saved me. However, golden children, we have a tendency to become the next generation of narcissists because we do believe that we're better than other people sometimes. And we can get into this place of feeling like the world owes us a lot of, you know, acceptance and praise and accolades because that's what we're accustomed to. But I was the golden grandchild all the way up until I was 13 when I had uh, an instance of asserting myself and choosing something that was important to me over something that my grandparents wanted from me. And I was promptly disowned and became an invisible child in the family and replaced by another cousin who became the favored grandchild. And I was reminded that I was replaced every time I would come to visit all the way up until I detached completely from the family. Yeah, I I spent some years trying to get back my golden child status and it caused me a lot of pain and a lot of heartache and a lot of attachment issues. And um, yeah, but I got replaced and then I had to come to terms with it and therapy helped a lot with that. So if you're a golden child that got replaced and became a scapegoat or a lost child, just know you're not alone. It happens a lot and it's all about whatever serves the narcissistic system and whatever the whatever narrative the narcissist is trying to put out into the world. So that's the golden child. The next main role is the scapegoat. The scapegoat is the opposite side of the coin from the golden child. So the scapegoat is usually the most outspoken child. They're the person that's the whistleblower a lot of the time. They're the ones that observe and they notice the dysfunction that's going on. And they're the most likely to call their parent out and ask them to be accountable. And parents, you know, narcissistic parents don't like that because they're trying to put on this show. They're trying to, you know, put on this play and the scapegoat doesn't follow the script. The scapegoat says, hey, this is wrong. And hey, this is not okay. And this is abusive. And they're the ones that say, this hurts me. And, you know, I want you to love me. And they're the ones that call things out. The scapegoat might also be the person that brings up the fears and the insecurities in the narcissistic parent the most. So if, you know, if the narcissistic parent was given a really difficult time as a child for being neurodivergent, if they have a neurodivergent child, that child might become the scapegoat. If the parent was treated really poorly by a father figure, then if they have a boy, like a single boy, that boy might be treated as a scapegoat, as a way to work through all of the dad issues and the anger and the rage and stuff that is coming out to the narcissistic father that your parent grew up with. You could also become the scapegoat if you tend to be the quiet one or the awkward one, or if you're the unattractive sibling, according to your parents. And so often I've been absolutely amazed at people who've said that they felt like they became the scapegoat because they were the unattractive one. And sometimes what happens, especially with mother wounds, is sometimes the scapegoated child is the embodiment of everything the parent wishes they were, and they feel threatened by that child. So they try to knock that child down a peg because they feel like they're too smart or too beautiful or too successful. So that child becomes the scapegoat in order to make the parent feel better. The scapegoat is typically considered the problem child. They can't do anything right. And they are kind of held responsible, not only for everything that goes wrong in the family, but like everything that the parent does wrong. It's always that child's fault. 
Anything that ever goes wrong is that child's fault. And the parent never apologizes. It's always the child's fault that the parent lost their temper or was abusive. It's because the scapegoat provoked them. And unfortunately for the scapegoat, we will talk about this way more in depth. There's so much to cover here. But for the scapegoat, often they're abused by their siblings as well, either because the siblings are trying to like gain some favor with the narcissistic parent by taking their side and like trying to like create some sort of trauma bond where the parent will love and accept them and see them as an ally. Or sometimes they're trying to avoid the rage and judgment that comes with being too compassionate to the scapegoat. Family members that give too much love and compassion to the scapegoat are often cut off and they become lost children or they become scapegoats themselves because they're not following the family narrative and they're not aligning with the narcissist. So sometimes they'll engage in abuse of the scapegoat as well in order to avoid that happening to them. It really does become like the hunger games in a narcissistic family where there's a set amount of love in supply and everyone's at the cornucopia. If you haven't seen this, you know, it's this main area where all the main supplies and food are. Everyone's at the cornucopia like battling each other to the death for the scraps of love and affection and attention that the parent has to offer. There's never this sense of there's enough love for all of us. There's enough acceptance for all of us that all of us are allowed to be ourselves and we're welcome here. There's a place for me no matter what. There's this very real sense of there's only enough love. I can only have one favorite child And I can only love and accept one person at a time. So who is it going to be? And why they do this is because it creates all this competition. Everybody's fighting for your love. It's kind of like when, you know, you're dating and there's like two or three people interested in you. It feels really good because everyone's kind of vying for your attention and vying for a chance to go on a date with you. But your narcissistic parent does that as well. They want everyone to vie for that attention and vie for that spot to be right next to them. And that feels really validating um, for someone who didn't get that validation as a child. So remember, your parents' inner child is completely driving the car and you've got this like three, four, five-year-old self that is just looking for love and attention and they will create all the chaos. They will burn the world down, including their own children and grandchildren in order to get that gap inside of themselves filled and feel worthy and feel like people love them and want to be around them. And subconsciously, they're doing this subconsciously. They're not conscious of it most of the time. Most of the time, they're not aware that they're creating so much chaos and harm in their wake. They see themselves as blameless, actually. So their conscious reality is they're not the problem. Everybody else is the problem. I don't know why my children don't get along. I don't know why they compete with each other. And I don't know why they have so much trauma and so, you know, so many problems with one another. I taught them to love each other. It's obviously their problem. I don't know what the problem is. All right, let's talk next about the lost child. So the lost child is typically the third most popular role in a family. And while the golden child gets all of the praise and accolades and can do no wrong, and the scapegoated child is the one that's the problem child and can do no right, the lost child is invisible. The lost child often gets neglected. Their needs don't get met. Sometimes like they're the ones that 
don't get taught the skills in the home. They're not allowed to have needs. They um, have a tendency to be really withdrawn. They tend to be the quietest child in the family because they've learned that even if they say something, no one's going to listen anyway. Their needs aren't going to be met anyway. So they have a tendency to really withdraw and hide inside of themselves. Um, They can become kind of antisocial even with people outside of their family, since it's not safe in their family, they have a really hard time making connections with people outside of their family too, because it doesn't feel safe. And this can persist all the way into adulthood. So they really miss out on some key social interactions because they don't see the point in reaching out to other people because the people closest to them have treated them like they're nobody, they're nothing, their needs don't matter. And this can even go so far as like not getting adequate food, adequate clothing, um, or even adequate medical or dental care. So often what will happen is narcissistic parents will take care of this child only to the point where no one will ask questions. And then the child is kind of left to take care of everything else themselves. So that's something that can happen. The next role we're going to talk about is actually one that is usually filled by the other parent, and this is the enabler role, but it can also be filled by usually a female child, so usually a daughter. Um, The enabler is usually an empath. They're usually codependent. So you've got the narcissist running the show. The enabler is the person that doesn't ever call into question the narcissist behavior. They don't protect anyone else. They don't ever whistle blow. They spend their time trying to keep the peace. So they're taking care of the narcissist feelings and emotions. They feel personally responsible for keeping the narcissist calm so that they can protect the other people in the home. And they often choose not to have needs. So they have needs. They just, they disembody from them. They shove them down and they put themselves last and they take care of everyone else. So they're taking care of the narcissist, trying to keep them from blowing up and, you know, taking it out on someone else. When they do blow up and take it out on someone else, not only do they calm the narcissist, then they turn and they take care of any people that were in the wake of the harm. And they'll try to make sure that they're all okay. What happens is because they're so busy putting themselves last and giving and helping and trying to like smooth everything over, these people often have a tendency to have a really hard time receiving rest or help or support themselves. They often get into caretaking roles like nursing, like therapy, like coaching. Um, They like to take care of other people. They've found in their family system that their worth comes from what they can do for other people. They're only lovable and valuable when they're doing something for other people, when they're giving of themselves or when they're being selfless. And religion becomes a great place for these people as well because a lot of those messages are perpetuated because they work really well with narcissists. So we've got covert narcissists typically in religion that are feeding off of these enablers, these codependent people that get their sense of self from being needed and providing service for other people in order to get a sense of validation and worth in return. And probably the last thing I want to say about enablers is they really have a hard time with relationships because 
They only know how to do, they don't know how to be. So it's really difficult for enablers to engage in relationships because they almost like need a checklist of, I I need to do this and this and this and this and this, and then bam, we have a relationship. They're not really sure how to just be and be open and share and be intimate. That's really difficult for them. And it's, it feels really scary for them. The next role I want to talk about is the surrogate parent slash the hero. So the narcissist is really busy just thinking about themselves. That's really all they're doing. They might be really engaged with the golden child and the scapegoat kind of doing that triangulation and getting all of the supply that they need. And the enabler parent is busy trying to like smooth over everything for the narcissist, for the scapegoat and for the golden child. And so often there is a surrogate parent, especially if there's a lot of other kids. So both parents are too busy with the chaos. So there has to be somebody who takes care of the younger kids needs. And so there is somebody that's assigned to the role of the surrogate parent. This person is responsible for kind of shoving again down their needs. They're not allowed to have needs. And instead they're held responsible for taking care of the needs of the younger kids. And they're held responsible for their siblings behavior and well-being. So if their siblings are not doing well at school, they can be held accountable. If their siblings are having, you know, outbursts of behavior because they're not getting love and attention from their parents and because they're in a traumatic situation, they then will blame the surrogate parent. The surrogate parent is the one that's held accountable if projects are forgotten at school, if, you know, medical appointments are forgotten. And so this child has to grow up far before they're ready to grow up. This child has to put away childish things and become an adult. Sometimes when they're still in the single digits, we're not even talking about teenagers. They have to caretake children, stay at home and feed and nurture and keep younger children safe. Sometimes when they're eight or nine or 10 years old, and it's a lot of responsibility for a very young child. And a lot of times what happens for this child is they grow up and they're overly disciplined and overly rigid. They have a great need for control as well because things feel so out of control. I mean, think about how overwhelming it is even as an adult to caretake several small children. And now you are a small child taking care of small children and you're being held accountable as if you're an adult. This is incredibly difficult. Now, what becomes even more difficult is sometimes this surrogate parent is also asked to parent their adult parent. So sometimes what will happen is that whole system, the whole family system is meant to provide safety for children, to provide guidance for children and love and acceptance and nurture and belonging so that kids can develop normally and grow into healthy adults. But what happens here is that whole system gets turned on its head where children are expected to parent their parents. They're supposed to meet their emotional needs. They're supposed to give them love and validation and acceptance And they're the ones that are caretaking their parents. And so surrogate parents, when they're children, they have a lot put on them. They have to grow up very quickly and they may become completely disembodied with their own needs. And in order to deal with all of the dysfunction, they become incredibly rigid and disciplined and responsible in order to like make sense of their world. 
And the last role I want to talk about is the mascot. The mascot or the clown is usually the youngest, and their role is to provide comedic relief to draw away attention from the dysfunction. So they keep people laughing and make things feel fun so that we're not so focused on the trauma, on the abuse, and on the dysfunction that's happening at home. These kids often end up becoming entertainers, but they often feel like a sense of emptiness inside of them because they weren't allowed to think about their own big emotions. They had to disembody or dissociate from their big emotions and they can be left feeling like they can't ask for the things that they need. They often joke off things that are really serious. These are the people that you'll often see making jokes at funerals. You'll see them making jokes when things get really, really difficult. They don't like to think about big emotions. They would rather laugh it off. So they're there to bring the comedic relief and keep everybody laughing, especially in public, keep everybody smiling, especially in public, so that no one gets to see the dysfunction that's happening behind closed doors. Now, there's a couple of things I want to talk about before we kind of wrap up for today. I want to talk about the consequences of what happens when we engage in these roles, when we're put in these roles as children, and we have to, you know, put on this play for the world in order to make our narcissistic parent feel better about themselves and feel more secure. So one of the first things that happens is we have a sense of low self-worth. We don't know who we are. And our attachment with our parent is usually pretty volatile, kind of ranging between acceptance and rejection, depending on the circumstances, depending on our choices, depending on where our parent is and what mood they're in at the time. And so we can have a really anxious attachment with our parents and it leads to a sense of unsafety in the world and with ourselves. And it leads to the sense of low self-worth. And this is true for everyone, including the golden child, which we'll get into more later. So there's no role that's safe in a narcissistic family. It's not like there's good roles and there's bad roles. All of the roles have drawbacks and all of the roles lead to low self-worth. All of the people in a narcissistic system grow up to believe that love is a limited commodity and that it has to be earned by your actions. So everyone in a narcissistic system has a very performative view of love, that they have to do certain things in order to be rewarded by love. And so for some families, that might be gift giving, or it might be caretaking, or it there's all these different things that we might feel like we have to do in order to be worthy of receiving love. And this can become really difficult in our adult relationships where we're bringing our kind of warped sense of what love is into our relationship. Either we're going to be with a healthy partner and we're going to feel unsafe because we don't know how this healthy system works and we're not used to getting vulnerable because vulnerability is really scary in a narcissistic family, or we just, you know, we feel uncomfortable. We feel like a fish out of water. We feel like a fish on land. And either that's going to happen or we're going to attract a narcissistic partner. That's what's going to happen. We're going to attract codependency because that's what we're comfortable with. So when we believe that love is a limited resource that we have to earn, we're either going to play that out or we're going to be with somebody that feels healthier and we're going to go through the discomfort of having to unlearn those things. And there's going to be friction as we're unlearning those things. 
The next thing is there's often a lack of trust for people that come from these systems. We've all been putting on masks. Even at home, we've been putting on masks. We don't feel comfortable getting vulnerable. Your vulnerability can be used as a weapon against you. Um, you know, years later, if you share something really vulnerable, it might be weaponized against you. Or if your narcissistic parent feels like it's going to make them look better, they might share your deep, dark secrets out in the open with other people as a way to either bond or as a way just to make themselves look better. And so you don't get vulnerable in narcissistic systems because you're just handing the enemy weapons is basically what you're doing. So lack of trust. We learn that vulnerability is unsafe. We have a really difficult time taking off the armor with other people, which limits our ability to have intimate relationships with partners, with spouses, with friends, and even with our kids. So it gets really difficult when we have that lack of trust. The next one we've talked about in depth is emotional suppression. When you come from a narcissistic family system, you aren't allowed to have needs. The only person that's allowed to have needs is the narcissist. Everybody else is there to supply their needs and to give them what they need to feel safe and happy and, you know, to not explode in rage. And so when we come from these systems, we get really good at numbing our emotions. We get really good at dissociating from our needs and our wants and our desires and, we become emotionally stunted. So when it comes to emotional intelligence, we have very little of it. We have to learn it. We have to practice it. And it's something that it takes, it takes a lot of time to learn how to do that when you're coming from these family systems. If that's something you want help with, remember, I do have the app, Emancipate Yourself app. It's on Google and Apple. And we specifically go into how to undo emotional suppression how to get back into our bodies and how to reclaim our identities. So it's going to help with emotional suppression. It's going to help with self-worth. It's going to help with trust. You're going to learn to trust yourself, to accept yourself and to feel all the things. So you know who you are. So if that's something that you would like to go check out, there's a seven day free trial, please go check it out. Um, head over to the emancipate yourself app and, you know, join us for one of the calls. We have a call every week on Monday and I would love to talk with you and hear your story and, you know, hear whatever questions you have and have a chance to answer those live for you. Free seven days. And then after that, it's $39.99 a month. I tried to keep it as inexpensive as possible so that it would be accessible to as many people as possible. So that's a win-win for everyone involved. Um, and we're in the middle of creating a new course that talks about holding yourself through the discomfort of growth and why growth is uncomfortable in the first place and kind of addressing some of these things that come from high demand systems like binary thinking, like uh, the inability to make mistakes and, you know, just all of those things that come up, like sitting with ourselves whenever we backslide, whenever we, you know, go back to old patterns I still go back sometimes to my narcissistic patterns because they feel comfortable. It's what I'm used to. So when I'm in uncertainty, when I'm afraid, I can revert back to perfectionism. I can revert back to people pleasing. And sometimes I can become the narcissist. Sometimes I can, you know, have those narcissistic traits because I feel so insecure and I want people to see me in a better light. So this new course is all about sitting with yourself in that mess, holding yourself with compassion and allowing yourself to continue to grow so that you can get the life that you want to have, the life that fits you well and become your favorite version of yourself. As Cherie said in our interview, uh, like a month ago, I loved that idea. 
your favorite self, not your best self. Cause I don't know that we ever arrive at our best self, but we can arrive at our favorite version of ourself right now, and then continue to grow into our next favorite version and our next favorite version. And last anxiety and depression are a big deal when we're coming from high demand systems, because we have so many feelings often stuffed inside of ourselves. We don't have a sense of self And that can leave us feeling really anxious about who we are and how we fit in the world and how we attach with others. And if we're likable and if we're lovable and if we're enough and just all of that can lead to senses of anxiety and depression. So those are some of the things to look out for. And then last, the thing I want to talk about is why we perpetuate these systems whenever we become older. So sometimes we repeat these patterns. I know I've talked with some of you in my Instagram messages and on the Facebook group where some of you have said, I came from a narcissistic family and then I realized I married a narcissistic person, or I think I might be a narcissist. I think I might have some of those traits. And we've had some great discussions about that. And here are a couple of things I want you to know. The first one is sometimes we gravitate to these systems because they feel familiar. We're familiar with narcissistic systems. It's the reason why when you've been a part of a high demand religion or a cult, you're more susceptible to mind control in other groups. It's what feels familiar. It's what your nervous system is used to. Doesn't mean it's good for you. Doesn't mean you like the results, but it feels safe because you know what's likely going to happen. You know the rules of the game. And so... We engage in this because we know the rules. We know how the game is played. So we have a tendency to subconsciously be drawn to those kinds of systems. And sometimes healthy systems can make us feel unsafe or they can make us feel inferior because we don't know the rules or like a fraud. So sometimes when we're in healthy systems, when we finally find our way to healthy systems, we're so worried that people are going to realize we don't know what we're talking about and that we're not the person that they think we are and that we're somehow broken or that people are going to flip. Like we feel so confused. Just know if you're in a relationship with a healthy partner and you sometimes feel like a fraud or you sometimes feel like they're going to discover you, they love you and they're giving you all this attention and all of this acceptance and love Sometimes you might feel like a fraud and you're so worried that they're going to figure out what your parent figured out, which is you're worthless. You don't deserve love and belonging. The love and belonging that you do get is conditional. And so some of those things might come up for you and just know that that's normal, that none of those voices are true. It's your inner child saying, but the old system, we had to perform in order to get love. We had to perform in order to get acceptance. And this person is just accepting us for who we are. And they love us. And they love us when we're angry and when we're sad. And they love us when we're happy and when we're successful. And we don't know what to do here. Like, when's the switch going to flip? Like, I'm anxious because I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. That comes from that anxious attachment that we had with our narcissistic parent or with our dysfunctional parent or our emotionally immature parent. And it's just our inner child freaking out, not understanding that this is actually a healthy system. And some people live in healthy ways and you've managed to find yourself in a healthy system. And yeah, that acceptance is real. Like you get to, you you get to enjoy being loved for you and not because of what you do for other people. 
And of course, you know, could that change in the future? Could something happen to your partner or your spouse or whatever? Could they be triggered and have a narcissistic moment or, you know, revert to patterns of narcissism? Sure. And at that point you reevaluate and decide, you know, what boundaries do I need? How can I hold you accountable? All of those things. So doing that work on yourself is going to allow you to risk showing up in relationships and allowing yourself to risk taking off the armor that you made for yourself to survive your childhood, to allow you to actually get close to other people. So if you notice yourself doing that, it's time to do some work with you. Okay. It's time to like start to feel safe with you and work through those things and highly recommend therapy, highly recommend, you know, going over to the app. It's a great place to start to get to know yourself better. Um, or I'd love to talk with you one-to-one as well. So if I'm not what you're looking for, I can, I'm, I'm becoming better connected with other people in the religious trauma space and in like narcissistic trauma spaces So if you're wanting to talk about family and not religion primarily, there are people I can send you to as well. So don't hesitate to send me a message and I can send you some recommendations. Um, And then last, some of the reasons that we get back into these patterns in adulthood is because we're trying to like change the outcome of what happened in our childhood. So sometimes we go back to those same systems to see if we can get a different outcome. It's like we're trying to fix it. And I want you to know we can't go back in the past and fix it. We can reparent ourselves in the present. We can heal ourselves in the present. We can comfort ourselves in the present. But getting in a relationship with another narcissist, it's not going to change the past. It's just going to create new trauma in the present. I think that is all I have for you. I have loved being here today. Thank you so much for being willing to talk with me, like joining me for this episode. What I want you to do today is I want you to really picture which roles you played in this narcissistic performance of your childhood. What were your roles and when? And if you feel comfortable, create a playbill. You know, when you go to a play or you go to a show, they have like that little piece of paper, create a playbill that shows your roles. And I want you to Like if you feel comfortable, share a picture of this playbill on Facebook. I'm going to create a post and you'll have a place where you can share your playbill with what roles you inhabited. What were the roles you were asked to fulfill in your narcissistic family? And did they change from act to act? Feel free to list all the roles that you felt like were applicable to you. And then ask yourself, are these roles you still want to play? And what role do you want to play now? So actually, instead of posting the roles that you used to play, what role do you want to play now? Create a a playbill for that. Let's do that. So figure out what roles you used to play in this performance. What is your role now? Who do you want to be? How do you want to show up in the world? What does that look like? And what would the play be? Or is it even a play? What permission are you giving yourself? to show up in the world as you? And how can you release all those old roles, understand that that was something you played in childhood, but you're not doing that performance anymore. You're in a new place. You get to inhabit whatever character, whatever role feels good for you. And hopefully it will be who you authentically are. But what does that mean? 
What does that mean for you? What does being Terry mean for me? What are my values? What are my beliefs now? How am I allowed to show up in the world? What would that playbill look like? What permission am I giving myself to show up in the world and be me? Who does that person look like? This is just an exercise in creativity. It is a chance for you to kind of explore and brainstorm who this person is now. And also giving yourself permission to release the old. If you want to create two playbills, you certainly can. I love burning ceremonies. I like to do them once a month. So I like to write things down that no longer serve me and burn them as kind of a physical reminder that I'm releasing those. Um, You could create a playbill if you want and put it up in flames as that is over. That old life is done. I don't have to be the lost child or the scapegoat or the golden child anymore. I get to be whatever is on this new playbill. So after you've made your playbill, or if you just want to write what your roles are or what this new you gets to look like, please go over to the Facebook post and type whatever you feel inspired to type. I would love to see that. I feel like it's really affirming to us to understand that first, we're not alone. And second, we have permission to evolve and grow. We have permission to try things on even. If you're in a place where you're trying to figure out who you are, I know what that's like. What do you want to try on? If you don't know who you are or who you're giving yourself permission to be, what do you want to try on? What role would you, you know, be excited to try on and see if it fits or what parts of it fit? That's all part of finding your identity as well. But figure out what you want to try on and put that on your playbill if you would like and share that in the Facebook group. So the links to all of those things are in the show notes. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with me today and spending this time with me. It means so much. And I will see you next Sunday.